Hello and welcome back to OT and Chill, all things occupational therapy with me, Kwaku. On the episode today, I am joined by Richard Barrett, an occupational therapist currently working with young people in an inpatient setting. We discuss some of his life experiences and how this has led him to working with people who have experienced similar things to him. He also is a blog writer and you can find the link to this in the show notes. Let's get right into it. So thank you very much, uh, Richard, for joining me today. Uh, like uh, I was just talking to you just before I pressed record, I, I came across you on Twitter and all the, the blog posts and the wonderful things that you put out to uh, about mental illness and about your, your work in general. So I was very interested to just have a conversation with you about all of that. So just, just to kick off, if, if someone told you to describe yourself to them, how, what would you say? Yeah, it's, it's a difficult question to answer, really, isn't it? I mean, especially as occupational therapists, we um, see beyond um, usual descriptions of people. Um, so, oh, I don't know, strange one. <laughs> a, a lot, of, a lot of things, really. I describe myself. Um, definitely, um, I see myself as a mental health activist. The one, which is why I'm on here, I guess. Mm. I'm very passionate about my job. My cat's watching me. <laughs> he might pop up at some point so yeah i'm i'm a big animal lover music lover so oh great yeah i've got got a lot going on but yeah it's good to be here so thank you for having me on here fantastic i know it's a difficult question and um yeah. to answer when someone tells you to describe yourself because you could just this is I'm, I'm a tall guy i'm a short guy i'm this i'm that <laughs> uh, that, would be, that would be the easiest way to um to go but yeah you're absolutely right i think in occupational therapy in general we try to see beyond just what the, someone looks like and you know we talk about values their experiences their life experiences and all that kind of things that makes them basically who they are just thinking about um, you in, in general and, and occupational therapy like we mentioned what 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 has it been like for you what how did you find occupational therapy what did you yeah how was the journey been like for you really oh so um i went to uni to do psychology nobody at any point tells you how difficult it is to get a job in psychology um so they don't tell you at school they don't tell you at uni it's only afterwards that you think oh wait i've got to put in all this effort um so a lot of people that i know from my course didn't go on to psychology they went on to like mental health nursing social work speech and language therapy and for me it was occupational therapy so i was considering mental health nursing for a while um, and then i worked with mental health nurses and decided then that i didn't want to do that <laughs> and then i worked with an occupational therapist and just thought okay this really makes sense to me because it was about promoting independence and skilling people and helping them to live lives to the fullest really mm. um, and that really resonated with me and my values so i discovered occupational therapy when i was about 24 and then when i was 26 i thought you know i've waited long enough i'll apply for the course so yeah, and it was it was everything that I wanted it to be really. It was mm. very like practical and hands-on, unlike psychology, which was too theoretical, I think, because <laughs> all the practical hands-on work comes after you've qualified. Yeah. So I really liked how sort of vocational it was, I guess, because right. I'm more of a doer rather than a thinker, I guess. <laughs> I like to, yeah, do things and throw myself into things. Yeah. Um, so it was just perfect for me, really, occupational therapy. Oh, great. So how long have you been qualified uh, in um, occupational therapy now? 
Oh, it's around three years now. So, yeah, I qualified. I went straight into CAMS, did that for, it was maternity leave cover. So I did that for a while, then went into adult mental health rehab and then back into CAMS again in my old place of work. So they told me a a new job came up, so I went for it, which I'm really glad I did. I, I liked working with adults as well, but we had the issue of coronavirus and working in mental health rehab there wasn't much rehab going on because we couldn't really take anyone anywhere or do any community reintegration mm-hmm. so it was sort of for a lot of the time it was keeping people occupied on the ward and i didn't feel like i was doing any proper rehab mm-hmm. so unfortunately i think i went into that job at the wrong time but okay. now now it's um, back to normal, I'd say, really. Yeah. The young people went to a safari park on Wednesday and things like that. So things are opening up. Oh, fantastic, fantastic. And what made you go into like, the camps, working with young people, basically, from the beginning, straight off? Yeah, well, it was definitely because of my own experiences of camps. So I was seeing camps services from the age of 12. Um, not inpatient services like mine, because I work on tier four inpatient unit. Mm-hmm. But they, some of them helped me, some of them didn't. I didn't get, which I blogged about a couple of times and I will expand on it in my blog, but I didn't get the right sort of care. And I thought I want to work with children that are in my situation and give them the right care mm. and be able to provide that for them. And it is difficult and it's definitely challenging. And I wouldn't recommend it as a first occupational therapy job, to be honest, um, to anyone who's um, just graduating. It is it is tough, but it's something that I'm passionate about. So you have to take these risks sometimes. Of course, of course. And what age group do you work with then? Um, it's, um, I think the youngest we've got at the moment is 11. Wow. Um, but we do... Um, do occasionally have younger people as well um up to 17. okay okay so and i work with the uh, slightly older um when they've, yeah. got, when they've crossed it from 18 to then 21 so i sort of get what well, not in not in the same sort of setting as you but yeah i work mm-hmm. with young people in 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 that age bracket and it's working with young people is it's, it's fantastic like, like you said this is you know they're so lively they're so um they're so dynamic they, they they're like sponges they want to learn but at the same time you know they're very very complex because <laughs> because they're young people and their brains haven't fully formed yeah they're still you know developing and so yeah it, it is quite tough um so i totally i can totally vouch um for that. and also we've all been young so we know what it's like <laughs> yeah <laughs> to, we've to, all been there we've all been there we've all been there <laughs> um so uh, you've mentioned before um about that you when you when you talked about describing yourself you describe yourself as a mental health activist and you just mentioned about how you went into camps because of your own personal lived experiences um so what what has that experience been like for you and what has it been like working within mental health services now so for me so i had an eating disorder when i was younger and a lot of the young people i work with now have eating disorders with eating disorders so i had bulimia and the people i work with generally have anorexia so it's slightly different but the sort of the feelings that cause it i don't think they ever go away So for me, I think the most challenging thing is sometimes when I'm working with people, I can sort of empathise too much in a way when I start sort of feeling those thoughts again um, sometimes. I don't act on them because I am really aware 
now. Um, it's been a long time since I've acted on eating disorder thoughts, a good um, however many years, 15 years or so. But that is sort of really challenging to be able to throw yourself into that environment mm. and not really, I mean, I was advised not to tell the young people about my eating disorder um, because, yeah, as, as you know, working with young people, they can use it against you um, and can be quite um, quite difficult sometimes with that because they don't know what to do with the information probably and yeah. it is a challenge for them to hold that and it's not really fair for them to hold that. Of course, of course, of course. And so I have I have told one young person I've worked with because I felt that would really be beneficial for her and it was, it was a risk I took and it paid off because she used that information to sort of push herself to recovery. Um, and she wrote me a thank you card when she was discharged and she wrote in it, you know, I'm really honored that you trusted me with that information. Um, I'm not gonna tell anyone. So it was really, really sweet of her to do that. Um, it was in the context of, cause I had a whole year out of school because of mine and she was worried about going back to school and reintegrating. So I sort of said, you know what, you go back. People are like, oh, you're back, okay. They don't really ask questions. They don't <laughs> say, ask why you were off. They just sort of are glad to see you back. Hmm. Um, so I don't think anyone, even my friends, they didn't really, like some of them knew, but the other ones were just like, oh yeah, you're back. Good to see you. It was sort of all positive rather than critical. And I think she was concerned that she'd go back in and it'd be a challenge to reintegrate. Hmm. Hmm. But then I, I don't know what happened. We don't really follow up once of they've course. been discharged. Of, of they get, course, yeah. Yeah, they get transferred to the community teams. And although we do work in partnership with community teams, once a young person's been discharged, we don't really hear much again unless they end up back on the waiting list. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I guess hopefully she, she's not come back. So yeah. <laughs> I that's hope a positive, really isn't it? That's a positive. Yeah. Uh, 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 it's very interesting what you say about how you were advised not to say it because, and, and you've explained it very well, as in actually some people might not be able to handle that information well well enough in, at, at whatever stage they are, in, in, yeah. um, especially in, in an inpatient um, setting um, because you're, const you're with them all the time and, and they might not be able to manage that information that well. Yeah. So where do you think that sort of advice came from? Where, where it obviously it came from, I'm guessing, like some form of management yeah. <laughs> uh, position, but why do you think they said that? I think in a way, you don't want to sort of pass on the trauma. And if I were to say, okay, I've had an eating disorder and they will then think, oh, you know, they've had it as well. Who, who are they to tell me that this is wrong and that kind of thing. Uh, I don't want to, anything to get in the way of that therapeutic relationship. Um, but things like anxiety, for example, which is a lot more well accepted as a common condition. And this is another thing that frustrates me, like depression and anxiety, they're the sort of, that's what everyone gets help for. Anything a bit more complex than that and you're on your own unless you have a breakdown and end up in inpatient services. Um, so I can say, if I'm working with someone with anxiety, I can say, oh, I'm anxious, you know, it's really common to be anxious, but you can't really say, oh yeah, I, I had bulimia for six years. So it's a really like, it's really difficult to know when it's appropriate. Mm. So I think as a rule, stay away from discussing something deep like that because you don't want to make it about you. You're the therapist, you're not a peer. You're not someone going on that journey with them. You're there to help them recover. I, it does make sense to me why I was advised not to. 
obviously I'm very aware that a young person could come across my blog and read it all, <laughs> but I'm not really promoting it in places that the young people would access it. And I'm quite conscious about where I'm promoting it, quite conscious about how much information I reveal about myself and all that sort of stuff. So, I mean, if someone were to come across it, I wouldn't be ashamed that that information is out there because that's what I'm fighting. I'm fighting that stigma and that shame because I want it to be normal for everyone to be able to say, look, this has happened to me and it's not my fault, rather than to hide it for fear of being judged. So yeah. it's sort of, you've got to take that risk really and push beyond what you're told is acceptable. Because I, I, no, I, I, think, I, I think you're right. I think I've, I'm trying to think about the difficulty in maintaining like a professional boundary. Yeah. Um, like constantly and we know like the, the rise of internet use and yeah. social media and just information overload we know in the age of information if you want information you can get it you can find it very very quickly so it's about managing like personal um uh, life or personal attributes or whatever it is you want you by yourself and, and professionalism by the same time it's very difficult to to do that because a lot of the time all of our all of us our personal and professional has to clash at some t- at some point yeah, um because it, right. again like you just said before it help it can help with certain therapeutic relationship like it can help someone that you're working with push them and motivate them a little bit more but at the same time some other people like you said before might not you don't want to pass on that that trauma maybe onto them or you don't want to make about you so it's about picking the the right time to use the information that you think might be most useful in the in the moment uh, I, I suppose um but yeah like if i think you mentioned as well about obviously your, the blog is it's out it's out there yeah <laughs> it's in it's in the world floating around and someone could come across it and at the same time you, you mentioned that you're not you're not ashamed of it so and that's fantastic and i was reading uh, i've read most of it actually um prior to oh, this um yeah and, and i think it's fantastic and, and I, I always I'm always an advocate for people to be as open and honest as possible because um, you never know what the next person next to you is feeling because you might be feeling exactly. exactly the same thing and you might be able to help the next person and and like listening to this podcast or um, or, or someone writing extensively about it it's, it's the same thing you never know who's who's listening but I was very um, reading some of them uh, and talking about your, your experiences with um, I don't really know much about eating disorders I've got to admit I don't, I don't know much about it and I'm always maybe it's the whole stigma around it and the whole perception around it um, so when I hear personally when I hear men um, experience it um, I'm not that confused but I, I want to understand what what what's behind it um, and, and and how yeah. do how do maybe men and boys deal with it differently to maybe women and girls um people people deal with it differently um so if you don't mind if if, if you if you want like to share a little bit of your experiences um with it and how you've managed to sort of o- overcome it and manage it over for, for the last 15 years yeah so um for men and boys i think the issue is we're often told not to talk about like explicitly you know don't cry don't say this don't say that which girls don't really get that so I think girls are more likely to be diagnosed with something like that because they're more likely to talk about it firstly um secondly for girls a lot of time it can be about body image um which it can be for boys as well I mean I have worked with boys with eating disorders who've had the sort of body dysmorphia 
But for me, it was all about gaining a bit of control over my life. So for me, it was an act of rebellion, I think. And it was a not a cry for attention, but a cry for help and support. Mm. So when you can't really do anything and as a child, if you feel that nothing you say or do works and nothing you say or do helps, then you have to be a bit creative about how you deal with that. And I think for me, the only thing I could really control was what comes in and out of my body. Um, I couldn't control what was done to me or I couldn't control where I was or who I was around. Um, I did, couldn't even control what I owned really because, you know, I was given what I was given. So for me, it was definitely about grabbing a bit of power back from my parents who were really difficult to live with. Um, and just basically saying like, look, I need help. Um, because nothing else that I said or did seemed to work. So crying didn't work, telling them didn't work. So I think sort of the idea of restricting that intake, knowing what food represented mm. uh, sort of is like health and living and sort of all this fuel that food is. So for me, starving myself was a protest really um the only issue is that it soon became like as we talk about in occupational therapy it soon became a habit mm. and once habituation took over it was part of my routine and part of my life um to restrict my food mm. and then the difference between bulimia and anorexia is that i would then binge and purge so say because my family were quite poor and working class. We'd save up and buy things for Christmas over the year, that kind of thing. So when I wasn't going to school and refusing to go, I'd be at home and I'd suddenly feel the need to binge because I was so hungry. And I'd like get out a massive box of chocolates or biscuits or something that was saved for Christmas. And I would eat the whole thing and then feel guilty and then purge it all up. Mm. So it was um, that that was another act of rebellion, really, in a sense that for my parents, they'd saved for those items and I would take them and destroy them. And I would do other things like I'd destroy, I'd go through their wardrobe and destroy their clothes and that sort of stuff. And I really ended up quite naughty in that sense and a bit of a... Um, yeah, definitely a rebellious adolescent. Um, but I do those things because asking for help didn't work. Asking them to treat me kindly didn't work. Mm. So I had to think of other ways. And because being good and, you know, I was always a good child. I was good at school. I was polite, quiet, but that didn't seem to matter to them. So I became a bad child. <laughs> um, so I did a few things I'm not proud of Yeah. at the age of like 13, 14 you don't really you know you're not really thinking ahead especially if you're having suicidal thoughts like I was having I didn't really think about what that entailed in the future um, 
and I mean for the for the purging, I've now got like gastro issues that I've had because of that, um, and issues with my teeth and things like that, which I didn't think about at the time and didn't really care about at the time. And now I'm like, you know, if only I didn't have issues with food for so long, <laughs> that I wouldn't be having gastro issues now. Yeah. But you don't, you don't think like that. And I can't turn around and say to the young people that I work with, you know, this is going to affect you for the rest of your life. Do something about it. Um, because they'll turn around and say to me, I don't want to, you know, I want to die. I'm not bothered. I don't have a future, which is the exact same things that I was saying. Hmm. So I can, I can, you know, part of me wants to say, you know, you've got all this potential and you can do amazing things with your life. But then I put myself in the position of them and think, where was I at that age? I would not have listened to that. I would have ignored that and probably rebelled against that and mm. made things worse. <laughs> mm. I remember someone I was working with had quite low self-esteem and didn't have anything positive to say about herself. And she was talking about um, getting eco-glitter, like bio-glitter that was good for the environment. Um, so I bought some and I said to her, you know what, you've got, you've got this value, this is great, you wanted to use the eco-glitter, you want to use the bio-glitter, whatever it's called, because you care about the environment, that's really good. So can you not see that that's a positive value about you? So in the next creative group, she used as much of the standard glitter as she possibly could and wasted loads of it and sort of made a statement to say, yeah, you got me there, but I'm going to completely go back on that value to show that I, I don't have any positives. Okay. And I thought, I, I had to try and stop myself from laughing because I thought that is exactly what I would have done at that age. You know, if someone had said, look at this positive about yourself, I would have done whatever was in my power to destroy that. Mm. <laughs> mm. So, yeah, I think having that knowledge of what it was like to be a child in that situation is really useful when working with them because you can sort of understand why they do things they do. Yeah. Um, and I like that in a way, but in another way it's frustrating because I can't blame them at all. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the tough one. I'm just, yeah. thank you. Thank you so much for, you know, sharing all that. And it's, it must, it must've been a very difficult time, especially when you're trying to ask for help and, and yeah. you don't, you don't feel like it, you, the help is coming from anywhere. And, you know, uh, when we talk about our, um, our carers or, or school or education or any, any, anyone that is a bit older than us that is in the position of care, um, yeah and they're not really helping at the time then it could become really difficult i just i've just because one of the one of the posts that you put up um i think you talked about how you were much much younger and then you you, you broke an arm or a leg or something like that and then obviously when you go back to school everyone can see that you oh broke, you, you've, yeah. broken a, you've broken an arm but then when you eventually went back to school uh following what you just described no one really asked it any questions about maybe how you were f really feeling in your mind and in your body um, because or you might not wanted to share with that um, and I wonder if that kind of thing still go go on now um, with the young people that you work with yeah so with that I had like minor surgery and I was off school for a month or two and I did get loads of like get well soon cards and everyone was sending me messages and things home and 
teachers were sending stuff and it was just like, oh, okay, you know, um, they care about what's happened to me because I had a physical illness. Mm. Um, but yeah, when it was, so the ho- I spent about the whole of year 10 off school, which was because I just couldn't handle it. My mind was just a mess. Um, and the thought of learning on top of that just seemed impossible and I just couldn't do it. I really couldn't do it. Um, but yeah, no one seemed to really ask, you know, there, there were rumours um, that I was bullied quite a bit in school. So there were rumours from bullies about what was going on. Um, and I heard them, my friends would come and tell me about them and I'd be like, oh, okay, well, that's not happening. But it was as if there was nothing, no phone calls from teachers or anything like that, just to sort of find out what was happening really. Because as, as a child, I did have a lot of abuse from my parents. And surely thinking back as an adult and as an occupational therapist, if I was working with a child that was refusing to go to school, I would wonder why, you know, and I would think there would be a deeper reason rather than just playing truant. So the fact that no one really seemed to get to the bottom of why I was off school, that is confusing looking back mm-hmm. because a lot of the CAMS input I had was about me trying to relate to my parents, um, to be good and to behave and it was all about changing me and my attitudes none of it seemed to be about changing the way they treated me um and it was you know there there was one big event basically um where they finally started listening to me but that was after 10 years (laughs) of, of me being at home and putting up with that Um, So the fact that it took 10 years for someone to listen and for someone to actually say, you know what, we need to get him out of there. That was really confusing for me, Mm. like on reflection as to why, you know, why I was considered the problem for so long. Mm. Um, And I think that's a lot of the issue sometimes. Um, It's about fixing the child. And that seems to be where people go and where professionals go sometimes. Not where I work. I think we're really lucky because it's a very holistic mm. point of view. Um, and we do think like like the occupational therapy, thinking about the environment. Um, so like physical and social environment, what can change there? And that's the way we work. You know, we think about the environment as well as medication and therapy. Um, all the young people have family, fa- family, family therapy. Um, so we do work like that, but nobody seemed to work like that with me. And I don't know if it's just a generational thing and things have got better now or because I hadn't reached that point of being put in an inpatient unit. Um, I don't know. I don't know why, where the differences lie and why they lie that way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was. it's really fascinating to me that it took 10 years for someone to actually say okay that child shouldn't be there yeah I, yeah that, I think was... it's a i think it's a it, it, yeah yeah definitely like you said you uh, we, we can never be sure of what what that is um uh, like you said you're you're in that this field now you 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 see people yeah. um at, at the at their worst bit, uh which is on which is not great um 
but at the same time maybe it's a generational thing but we we just don't know we can't put we can't put a finger on it but it's still at the same time it doesn't matter if it's generational it's still it's still a long time for anyone yeah. um to 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 say anything or to pick up on on points and and I, I just wonder if it's because um maybe back then like we talked about uh, you know the the whole rhetoric about boys are just naughty or boys are just mm-hmm. playing up he, he's just a, he's just a, he's just a bad boy um yeah. rather than actually let, let's let's why is why is he doing what is he what, what he's doing why is he being quote unquote naughty there must be something yeah. that is could be potentially bothering him and I, I suppose I wonder if if it was compared to a, 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 a girl or female in the same position as you that might have been picked up much much earlier um because yeah, either either, either bit they're willing to talk or the you know the societal view of women which is not great <laughs> it was just it's, it's negative and saying well, let's let's help like a uh, a bit of a dance damsel in distress situation yeah. which which is not a good way to look at it as well just take um someone from the you know the, the viewpoint and understand them and i just wonder if if actually it has progressed as much as um possible since your experiences do you feel working in this field now do you feel like it's progressed um i think it must have done really or i don't know living in manchester and living in a city um, and growing up in the countryside it's sort of there's too many um changes really in my life since then um but i'd like to hope so i mean if we think there's a safeguarding issue we raise it straight away um so that's something that's just natural for professionals in all areas really now mm, mm. it seems that way safeguarding has become much more um of a really important topic so i'm not sure whether it is just time whether it is you know it could be a gender inequality thing mm. but i i do know that boys and men do find it much more difficult to talk mm. about mental health um and they do get told that or at least i was told my stepdad's line was don't be such a bloody woman that was um (laughs) whenever i showed any amount of vulnerability or if i cried or if i complained you know i got called a woman so that's sort of like that sexism against women yeah is also sexism against men because it says that men aren't allowed to have those qualities where they are open about how they're feeling and I think that still happens today you know I know a lot of men who really struggle to open up and I say to my male friends you know I'm always here you know if you need if you need to talk to anyone and a lot of them won't take me up on that even though you can tell that they definitely want to and I think a lot of it is the stigma um about talking about mental health and how they'll be perceived Mm. i mean i'm sure they know that me being a mental health professional i won't judge and i but then they might also not want me to sort of medicalize it or yeah i I think you're right it's it's a difficult it's a tricky one isn't it you don't it is it's a tricky one i I totally agree with i think uh, even in my setting um you know 
if you people show very much softer emotions as you might call it um it, yeah. you know it, they don't really want to do that because of the perception that that gives off um that macho that or that less macho perception but actually when you're angry you're 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 praised for it in their groups you're angry you you can you can show this aggression and it can come out in yeah. this way um sometimes in their environments it's, it's it's praised because you can show that you're you're a man and what what does a man what does a man actually mean that's the, I was, uh, we have these conversations what what does it mean to be a, a man does it mean that actually you're always angry yeah. <laughs> is that what it means to you um or does it mean that actually you can balance um all your emotions out as much as possible and I, you know i have conversations about tell them no one's perfect no one is able to um manage their emotions completely no one could be angry all the time no one could be really really sad all the time it, it's just about managing and realizing actually recognizing those emotions I, I think that's the that's the trick recognizing that you are feeling uh a, a little bit sad or anxious about something and then approaching another male um a friend or or someone in someone that you think that can help you and having those conversations say actually i'm feeling quite quite sad where yeah. some, sometimes that's marked with um with outburst of anger basically <laughs> outburst of anger and aggression and you know frustration and um damage to property um and that's how they act out their their emotions but actually deep down when we delve into it and have conversations later down the line it's because something has happened that has made them feel yeah feel quite sad about it just by expressing it initially that's the that's the that's the most difficult thing and you know comments like uh uh don't be such a woman it, it makes it very if it's repeated on a daily basis um yeah. it becomes something that you may may true may come to believe um uh, down the line actually this is a representation of women which is actually wrong as well at the same time <laughs> but you take that on board don't don't you um thinking yeah. about thinking about young, the young people that you work with what is the is do you have any statistics around the prevalence of it or from your own uh, experience of working with young people how how um how common is it that um young people come into your services a lot or how much type of numbers are there in the community um seeking yeah. Um, assistance. Yeah, so I had a little look at the statistics, and it's uh, different sites say different things, but it's like between um, one in six and one in ten young people. I think that's probably quite a conservative estimate, to be honest. Um, I'd say that a lot more young people are struggling with mental health problems. Um, when you think about things like toys on the market a lot of the popular toys for kids are actually what we would consider like sensory stress relief things mm. like squishies they were um at one point like every child on the ward had like a big box of squishies and were <laughs> carrying them around with them everywhere and squeezing them and that became just like a standard thing that they needed to relieve stress um, so if we've got all these stress toys marketed as uh, children, why are the children so stressed that they need this outlet? What are we doing wrong? Because for me, childhood should be about being a child and enjoying that and being able to play and have fun and learn and develop and grow, not to be worried and scared and stressed. Mm. And then we have situations like poverty where the children are expected to grow up very quick. Um, they might have to look after younger siblings. I mean, for me, I was always told that as soon as I turned 16, I was gonna get a job 
I wasn't going to go to college or university, which is what I wanted to do. But I was told that I needed to contribute to the house. Um, I didn't. I got I got taken away and put into care before that age, thankfully. Um, so I didn't get to contribute to the house. <laughs> but I did. I did have a paper round that I didn't get to keep my money <laughs> from. Yeah. So I contributed that way. Um, but yeah, things like poverty, um, abuse, both intentional and unintentional from parents. Um, I'd say a lot of abuse is unintentional, in a sense that parents just don't know what to do you know parenting isn't easy and it's really easy for me as someone who had abusive parents to think oh that's abuse you know their parents must be abusing them but I also have I'm not a parent myself but I have a lot of friends who are parents and they talk to me and I know how difficult it is Mm. um and what one person might consider abuse another person might consider normal whether it's because that's a tradition in their family or it's cultural or something, or they just don't know any better. Like there's loads of different reasons by where something I might see as abuse might just be normal, mm. you know, to a certain family. Um, and a lot of a lot of the young people I work with have got quite pushy parents who want them to succeed. So they'll want them to be professional gymnasts, athletes, swimmers, things like that. And they'll really push and or they'll push them academically and want them to overachieve so we'll get all that pressure on a child before they've even become teenagers sometimes um and a lot of the time they don't want that but they don't know how to say to their parents you know i I don't want to be an athlete i don't want to get grade whatever on the piano i don't want to go to university so like how do you let your parent down when you love your parent and they're supporting you and putting this money towards your classes or tutoring or whatever it's it's difficult to say actually no i find this really stressful Mm. and that's how a lot of eating disorders come about because i think one person i worked with was her parents wanted her to be a gymnast and she said like she disclosed to me that she lost weight so that she was too light and couldn't work with her partner anymore. Um, I don't know much about gymnastics, but I think like certain people who are partnered need to sort of complement each other in terms of weight and stuff. Mm. And she said, you know, this is why I've lost weight because I don't want to do this anymore, but I don't know how to tell my parents. And that, for me, that was so just like heartbreaking really to hear that she'd got to the point where she had to make herself ill to actually say, you know, I don't want to do this. Mm. And she wanted her life. She wanted to be in control of her life rather than her parents, who had all the best intentions, you know. They weren't actively abusing her. But if you think about things like institutional abuse, taking away someone's choices, if it's sort of in a home environment and you're taking your child's choices away and you're making them do this thing, you know, you might if they turned around and said, I don't want to do this, you might be like, oh, okay, that's fine. You don't have to. But if your child doesn't know that and your child loves you and knows that you love them, you know, it's difficult. So it's not as black and white as like abusive parents or not. You know, it could be the most loving and attentive and um, supportive parent ever, but they could still be making their child ill by doing what they think is right. And that's really difficult. 
Yeah, it's difficult. It's, you raised a good point, and I've just it just came to my mind. I'm thinking about how actually, when when you're a child, you might you might not have the words to uh, describe the way you feel. Um, mm. you, you know, to your parents, especially because, you, like you said, you, you love your parents, so you might well not want to let them down, or you don't feel like you want to let them down. Um, so you obviously not, and you're not mature enough to have a an adult conversation. Is <laughs> all you're you're always in the position of a child talking to a, a caregiver, um, and there's always going to be that power 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 um differential between you because you see how your parents someone that is helpful like you said is you know takes care of you drives you places takes you to practice um but yeah you just don't have the words to say actually mom dad i really don't want to do this I'm, I, I feel like this when i go there um and it's about the language as well right and i suppose maybe we're not i don't know what, what it's like to work with children as young as you work with um i don't know how normal it is for these children nowadays to have this level of um, language and, and thinking um skills or do they develop that when they come to you or do they is this a, is it is it just a process of mature uh, maturation it's just there's a lot of questions just flying around in yeah, my yeah. head about, <laughs> about that um yeah it's quite it's quite a difficult thing because i definitely i've definitely had nothing like any of your experiences or any of the young people that you work with but i can say that when i was younger i definitely wouldn't have had um the language <laughs> to be able to use um uh, to tell my parents if i was even stressed about something or was upset about something like that um uh yeah i, I just wouldn't i wouldn't know and I think you you spoke about when you the, the occupations of a child. If you think about the occupations of a child, the main occupation for a child, um, if we talk about developmentally, is um, playing. You know, you, yeah. you're, you're playing, you're learning, and then maybe education comes next in in the next phase from that like eleven to. 18 or wherever wherever the was the minimum age in school now you have to stay in school to 18 isn't it now i, I think. think so yeah. <laughs> yeah um but yeah so yeah that's that's your main occupation you're playing and you're learning and if that's taken away from you for any reason or you don't you're not enjoying any of those um occupations because you are experiencing mental health um difficulties that's that's really um, not great for um the mind or the or the body really so thinking about the inpatient services thinking about your actual your job that you you're doing um because i know we talked about your own um, lived experience a lot um how best do you think we can all of us can support uh, young pe- young people in um in looking after their mental health i think the first thing is to sort of validate their experiences and believe them really you know young people want to be believed and they want to be heard and if they end up in an inpatient service somewhere along the line someone hasn't heard them whatever message they're trying to communicate hasn't been you know listened to and acted upon to the point where they've had to go into an inpatient unit because they've reached <laughs> reached that point of severity um, as well as eating disorders we work with young people with something called pervasive arousal withdrawal syndrome which you might not have heard of. I know, I've not heard of that. You have to expand on that. <laughs> so it's um, it's quite rare. And although I, I don't think it's as rare as, um, I think there's a lot of children with undiagnosed um, pause, we call it for short. Um, but it's basically, it's not under like the DSM or anything. It's still a theorized condition. And it's where they, well, in the name, arousal withdrawal, they sort of withdraw from doing things 
So they might stop talking, they might stop eating, they might stop with their self-care, stop walking. So we can get people who come in in a wheelchair when they've been walking normally before, um, with a nasogastric tube to feed them when they've been eating normally before, because they've just shut down. And it just, when you said before about um, not finding the language and not having that language, that might be a contributor to why if they can't say, you know, I'm really, really struggling, then the actions that they take of shutting down and, you know, withdrawing, that could be the only language they know. Mm -hmm. um, and I think looking back, I think part of my eating disorder was probably more um, pause in a way. I mean, it wasn't really a thing back then, but I did withdraw. I withdrew from school. I stopped bathing. I stopped eating. I didn't want to talk to my family, so I wouldn't talk to them. So a lot of the characteristics that they had, they have, sorry, um, I feel that I had um, because I did shut down. I didn't want to get out of bed. I didn't want to do anything. I didn't want to live. I didn't want to exist. Um, so when these young people are coming to us in a chair, basically catatonic, mm. um, it's what, what message is that saying to their parents? And what message is it saying to professionals? So whatever their issue is, we then have to slowly deal with it. So the role of occupational therapy in that is to just grade things and to try and get them back into normal day-to-day -day routines. So we'll bring them along to different activities. So say if we're doing a group, we'll sit them in the group. They might not join in because they're not moving or speaking or even looking, but they're there. Um, living a normal life, they'll go into school. So we'll put these things in and we'll have the periods of rest where they don't have anything to do and in the hope that they'll start doing something because they're so bored, um, which sometimes happens. Um, <laughs> so it can take months for them to sort of, we say, wake up from this uh, like arousal withdrawal state. But sometimes it can be really quick and they'll go from not doing anything to suddenly being fully functioning. Mm. Um, but the difficulty there is that it's really difficult to then explain that. Um, so family, friends, professionals might have questions like, oh, okay, so what happened? Why are you, you know, why are you back to normal suddenly? Um, so usually it's a long drawn out process where they then have to sort of keep their dignity and, recover slowly because it must be really like they don't want people to think oh you were faking it you know and a lot of them aren't faking it that is their coping strategy that is how they learn to get through the day yeah, to withdraw yeah. you know and it must be really difficult to then move away from that because it's it is a big commitment to withdraw completely hmm. and i know from my experiences of not eating is so difficult. You know, you're like ravenously hungry the entire time. Um, and I just remember just wanting to eat and all I could think about was eating. But the thought of eating made me think, okay, then I'm letting myself down because my, the whole point is that I'm not eating. So it's like a cycle, isn't it? Yeah, it is a cycle. And then when I got to the point where I had to binge, 
you know, I had to purge because I felt so guilty for binging. And I thought, oh, all that's in my body now. It shouldn't be in there. Mm. But it's that whole like ravenous feeling of needing to just, <laughs> mm. you know, like like a wild animal just wanting to devour so much. Mm. And yeah, it was it was tough. It was tough. But the I can sort of empathise with the young people yeah. because they are, as you said, they don't have the words to say. What, exactly what they're feeling and the only the only thing they can do is actions and people yeah. express themselves in actions in different ways whether it's getting into crime or whether yeah. it's withdrawing yeah so people go in people go in different directions so like you know like i think you mentioned about how when the, some of the young people come into your into the inpatient setting it must be really difficult for them to, to come in there because it, and also difficult for the parents at the same time because yeah. you know um, it's your it's your child or and you, your child is having to go into this strange place and live with other <laughs> other people that they don't really know and be and work with quote unquote professionals and a bit of authority gets taken away from from the parents so how do you manage that whole experience like uh, from an occupational therapy point of view because I know you're not the only person there <laughs> there's always it's a wider MD team uh, view but how do your service and you particularly manage that whole experience of of a young person being in a very strange and difficult uh, setting um so we we involve the parents in their care we offer family therapy to everyone who comes in we use the um care program approach cpas yeah. and the parents are invited to those every six weeks the parents can visit five days out of seven so the parents are you know they are involved they do have frequent contact mainly with the doctors and nurses but if they want to speak to us as well then they do i mean i've, I've got good relationships with some of the parents so we do want the parents to be part of the care definitely as much as the young person is and a lot of the young people are there under parental responsibility rather than under a section three of the Mental Health Act. We do need to use um, the Mental Health Act sometimes, especially if the young person needs a lot of restraint. But generally, they're there under parental responsibility and the parents are massively involved because, yeah, it must be difficult for the parents, definitely. And they need just as much support as a young person sometimes because it's it must be terrifying knowing that your child is in a mental health unit and a lot of <laughs> it must be really tough it must be really yeah. tough you know and i mean sometimes you do get parents that are less sort of less concerned and that's either because they're very practical and trust the professionals to get on with it and they admit that they don't really know anything about it and just want to leave it to us others are probably happy of the respite because it, if you've got those problems going on at home and you're really struggling to cope you know it must be really difficult so having the child go away and be you know someone else caring for them for a while that might be a bit of a respite for you mm. but generally the parents they visit all the time they're really cooperative um they want they want us to help their child um, but every family is different and it's just about getting to know the parents in the same way. Sometimes one parent will be really chilled out and the other will be really stressed. 
sometimes you get parents that are very, what's the word, oppositional with professionals and think that we're going to do everything wrong. And that's probably just a normal anxiety to have. Because yeah. you're handing your child over to someone else and having them care for them. So I think every family is unique in the same way. Every young person's unique. But I'm just mindful that I don't think, okay, that's abuse <laughs> straight away because of my experiences. Because as I said before, a lot of parents, they don't intend for this to happen to their child. And a lot of the time it is because they're being very supportive and very caring and thinking that they're doing the right thing. Because there's no manual, is there, for parenting? No, there, there, <laughs> there, there really isn't. And it is difficult. It is difficult being a parent. I, 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 yeah. uh, I've got my own children and it is difficult being a parent, man, trying to manage your own your own life, your own self. Yeah. <laughs> and then you've got other people that you've got responsibility for. And that it's, it's, you're absolutely right. I think as a parent, um, you try to do your best for your child. But at the same time, if you then you don't have that communication and that bond with your child constantly and you know help try to assist your child to find that language um or or, or watch what they're doing to see what is happening then it, it can get to certain stages that the child might need help and then at that time it's really difficult because the parent feels guilty for thinking that they've done something wrong but at the same time they were trying to do their best like um you said i, I can imagine if it's a very um rewarding uh, role that you have especially when the, um, a young person comes in and they're very very unwell and then eventually they, they they're coming out of your uh, of your service and they, they, they're doing quite well you know returning to school and doing as much as they can with their life it must be quite rewarding yeah it is it's it's really nice and um, a young person well not a young person anymore <laughs> an ex-service user from the service actually contacted me on twitter with some feedback about um, some of the staff, including my manager, who's the other occupational therapist, saying that um, she inspired her to study occupational therapy. Oh, wow. um, so she was there with an eating disorder and she's now a student occupational therapist. And, you know, I found that amazing. And I fed it back to the team because she mentioned a few people by name who are still there. So it was really nice to hear that she remembered, you know, she remembered how how she was treated and how the people worked with her, mm. including the OT. And it inspired her to do that at university. So that is really nice to hear, that you know, nice. that she's gone on to live her life and she's got ambitions and she's gone from being in a very angry place to being in a very hopeful place and wanting to further her career. That's so amazing. I really, really enjoyed reading that and knowing that she's doing so well. So it's nice to know that the work you do with someone as a child can lead to them becoming a successful adult. Yeah. That, that is really nice. And, you know, and it's because that you do have people that are in the system their entire lives, you know, and like when I was working with adults in rehab, there were people in their 40s, 50s, 60s who had always been in the system and had never really managed to get out of it. And I find that really difficult personally because I'm all for early intervention and getting getting people before it gets to that point yeah um, which is why I'm now studying public health but it's yeah it's it's difficult and that's why I find working with children more rewarding because you get in there at the earliest possible opportunity and you support them to get back on track and not everyone will you know there, there will be some that end up in adult services and continue 
their lives and services. But for a lot of them, you get in there just at the right time and you support them. And when you get people saying, giving you good feedback and saying, you know, you really helped me, that's really nice. And that's part of the reason why, well, the whole reason why I do the job is to help people. No, that's um, amazing. So it's great. It's great when someone's discharged and, you know, they give people thank you cards and they come and see you and give you a hug and things like that and say thank you. It's really nice because going from where they were at at first, which is usually a very dark and angry place, they don't want to engage with you. They don't care what you've got to offer for them to go through that process and then leave. But not always, not always cured, but getting a further on their recovery journey really yeah. you know a lot of them are discharged to community teams and it continues but not needing inpatient stay that's brilliant yeah that's amazing i just when you said about when when we work in certain places we don't know what happens to people when in in five years down the line or or a year down the line even and and even in my setting when some of the young men like when they leave the prison to go to adult establishments or actually back into the community and then they write back to you and you think and they mention something quite specific that you, yeah. you you might have said or done with them and then you think wow actually you you had an impact on this individual and you know I think that's why I personally like working uh, as an occupational therapist because yeah we, we actually get to work with people we get to work with people and yeah. you know you can build I'm very fortunate in my service that we, I can build relationships with people and probably the same for you um, as well you can actually see people um, face to face you know you talk to them you find out what they, what's really important to them what, what their thoughts and their opinions about all aspects of, <laughs> of of things in life and then you know you can really remember you and you know hopefully when they are adults they, you know they can live their life as as, as they want to so yeah it is, it is a reward it must be rewarding for you especially but it's definitely rewarding working with young people because you do have a opportunity to help to influence how someone lives their life as an adult actually thinking about you now coming back to you and how you, how you're doing now um you know it, it come from conversations with you that it, it comes across that you're doing fairly well is that would that be okay <laughs> would that be um, a right yeah right session? <laughs> how do you how do you manage your mental health um, difficulties at, at, at present and have you got any tips on to to others that might be experiencing very similar things or might have experienced very similar things in the past yeah well it's definitely about management it's not i don't know if things like this are curable really or whether you just learn to live with it and learn to live despite it because like for me i have a condition called complex ptsd um which i explained in my most recent blog because i don't think it's very well known um ptsd is well known but complex ptsd is a relatively new thing um mm. so that is something that i live with every day but it's all about finding things and again and another reason why I'm an occupational therapist, I think, is finding things to do that you're passionate about and you care about. And that makes life a lot easier. So I do still have bad days, but working, studying, doing leisure occupations, you know, seeing people, talking to people, being open about my feelings, just finding something that you're passionate about is a really good start. Mm. Um, because then you've got a purpose and you've got something to work towards and for me because I am passionate about my career it's sort of 
it's not taken over my life definitely i mean tomorrow i won't really be thinking about it so it'll be the weekend but um it's fantastic over- very good yeah. very good <laughs> yeah we've got to think about occupational balance yeah but yeah it's it's taken over a big chunk of my life and although it's not easy because our jobs well they're not meant to be easy really are they um we don't <laughs> want an easy job no but no having a job that we love and we're passionate about i think that's really good and finding that passion whether it's a job whether it's an interest just finding something that you're passionate about is a really good way to manage your mental health because that way you've got a reason to keep going Mm. so a few years ago i had a bit of a breakdown and i ended up in a and e because my mental health was really suffering and i actually (laughs) <laughs> used my knowledge of the system to talk myself out of getting sectioned, uh, <laughs> which I was very pleased about. But because I'd worked in all the local mental health units, they wanted to send me up to Durham, I think it was. And my partner at the time was going away to Belgium for work the next day. So I was worried about the cat. And I was sort of thinking, you know what, I really can't go to Durham for however long and be sectioned there. And I mean, on reflection, I probably would have had a few days there and then they would have, you know, taken the section two away and I would have come home. But at that time, it just terrified me, the thought of having to go into a unit when I'd worked in so many because I worked as a support worker before I qualified in different mental health units. And I have a friend who has schizophrenia and he said that being in a mental health unit was one of the worst experiences of his entire life, Mm. which he said it wasn't because of the staff. The staff were really good. It was because of the other patients and he was in a dormitory, which, (laughs) you know, putting someone with psychosis in a dormitory with someone with depression and someone with OCD and someone with anxiety, that's never going to work really. Mm. And thankfully that particular unit, they're going to, Um, tear it down and rebuild it with individual rooms Um, it never should have been built with dormitories in the first place but you know it's all about cost saving isn't it I didn't didn't realize that those type of places still existed in terms of like dormitories that's so is that's quite that's quite that's uh, tricky I wouldn't at most places that I've seen that don't seem to come like that but yeah it's that's very very shocking actually yeah so i mean we're, we're lucky at work everyone has their own room so they've got that space which i think you need you need that space if you're in a crisis being in a dormitory in a crisis is just not going to make you better no <laughs> no i just don't not. don't get the logic of that at all no, um, actually when this is uh, probably unrelated but but sort of related uh, well, i was having a conversation with um uh um, alice on the podcast um and was just talking about involuntary childlessness and then i think she mentioned about sometimes when people are going through crisis or very difficult times um in their lives what they need is solitude they they, they need time alone uh, to with their own thoughts in 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 a way but not not damaging thoughts that they're going to maybe you know hurt themselves or anything like that but sometimes it's just a a bit of peace and quiet uh, (laughs) away from 
other people who might be experiencing similar things to then actually manage what is going on for me, um, what's happening around me. And not everyone needs to be with people for starters. Like you said, um, in the dormitory, that's very, very, um, that's that's just shocking. Yeah. I'm, actually, I'm actually quite shocked about that. But in the same way, actually being by myself, still, still receiving a little bit of support once in a while, but actually just time to be with yourself, by yourself and find out what is going on for you before then you start taking the next step forward, actually being with a couple of people people or you know i think you mentioned earlier about the grading approach that you might use at work actually when someone comes in and they don't really want to do it is it there's there's no there's no um, coercion involved it's it's just when you're ready to take that next step in being with other people because it must be difficult when you've experienced all these kind of emotions and think and thoughts by yourself and then you yeah. come into and you come into uni and you sort of get right here you go <laughs> go with other people that are experiencing very similar things and and talk openly and that must be a very very um, um difficult thing to do um but yeah i think you've given some very good tips just you know managing manage management or that was the word that you used wasn't it um yeah management and um finding things that are, are, are of passion um to you and, and and something that you enjoy doing and having that balance between between that so that i think that's very very sound advice to anyone um actually you've mentioned or we've mentioned a few times about your blog <laughs> this is a this is a time to expand on it a little bit more so what what actually prompted you to uh, start the blog uh, in the first place and 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 after that what what was the response been to it uh, since you started posting it up um so the first thing that inspired me really was um, being at university and um, I studied at the University of Salford which was fantastic you know I can't, I can't fault it at all the whole learning experience was amazing and that was down to the staff who were all brilliant but a few of the staff spoke about their experiences of ill health so someone spoke about cancer someone spoke about diabetes and someone spoke about bereavement and those three sort of lectures were things that will always stick in my mind because they were so open about themselves and their own bodies and their own minds and they were using themselves as case studies in a way so that we could learn and I thought you know what I've got a story to tell and I think mine's very important to tell, but it took me so long to get it out there because I was just worried about the stigma, about what people would think if they knew this about me, like if they knew about my history of abuse, if they knew about my eating disorder, if they knew that I was in care. So I've always been, um, I've always been open about that, um, but in that sort of formal, formal way for strangers to read about it. I think that's really important because, you know, if I could inspire one person to say, you know what, I can talk about my story now because you have, then I've done the job. And since um, since putting the blog up, I've had positive responses from one of the lecturers who actually inspired me to do it in the first place, which is really nice. I've had friends message me and say, you know, I, I can relate to that, I've been through this. I've had strangers message me. I've had acquaintances that I don't know very well message me and we've connected over it. So there has been overall a positive response, which is good. A lot of people have said that they're proud of me and that what I'm doing is really good. But then I've also had a bit of concern as well. People saying, you know what, why are you, you know, anyone could read that, you know, an employer could read that and use it against you and decide not to give you the job. Um, someone said that it was too public, 
and they'd be worried about if they were to do it they'd be worried about who who would find it and who would read it but those concerns are the reason why i'm doing it <laughs> in the first place because yeah, yeah it's, it's weird isn't it it goes like yeah it needs to be talked about but when you talk about it it becomes a problem <laughs> but yeah. actually that's the problem that you need to talk about at the same time yeah so it's, someone has to do it someone yeah. has to push through and actually say you know what stop demonizing people for being open you know stop the stigma allow people to talk about how they're feeling allow someone to say you know what i was abused and i'm living with the consequences and i always will live with the consequences you know the consequences of abuse are lifelong and a lot of people don't realize that and we all might function and we all might be successful and get through our lives and just live normal lives have families but that sort of stays with us and i think a lot of mental health problems stem from trauma of some sort whether it's something that you've witnessed, something you've been through, something someone said to you, whether you were bullied at school, whether you've ended up being living in poverty, you know, all those things that can affect your mental health. It's some sort of traumatic experience. So being open about trauma and not being ashamed of trauma, I think is huge for people because why should you feel ashamed for something that was done to you? And that's what, that's the message I want to get across because a lot of, through a lot of my life, I have been ashamed, you know, of what's happened to me. And I felt as if I was the problem and professionals when I was younger made me feel like I was the problem and that I was naughty and my anger was, wasn't right and wasn't fair. But my anger was completely justified because I was having something horrible done to me without my consent and the fact that I'm now sort of expected to keep quiet and live in shame and sort of um, keep it to myself and not tell anyone whilst knowing that thousands and thousands of other people out there will be keeping that to themselves and not telling anyone mm. men especially are committing suicide at such a ridiculous rate because they can't talk about what they're going through I don't want that to continue. So I'm hoping that if me and other people who are willing to start putting what we've been through out there, then other people will do it too. Other people will start having those conversations with their loved ones and their families and friends and say, you know what, I'm struggling. Then we can sort of normalize it because everyone should be able to turn around to someone and say, you know what, I need some help. I need some support. Yeah. Yeah. But a lot of people feel they can't, especially men and boys. Not that women don't have that problem too, a lot of them do. But for us especially, you know, we're told that that's not how we're meant to behave and that's not, you know, we just chin up, put up with it, especially in British culture too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, some cultures it's normal to talk about it, but over here it's just like we're too sort of stoic. Yeah, and stiff, stiff upper lip. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Stiff up and live. No, it's yeah. Uh, yeah, it's difficult. But yeah, uh, I think I think I put like I said before uh, right at the beginning that I think your, the blog is fantastic, and I'm glad that you're you're doing it because I think, oh, like you. I said, when when you share, when anyone puts themselves out there to do anything like this, um, it's always difficult, isn't it? It's always difficult to take the step. But once you've taken the step, then you might encourage all the people to 
take the step and then someone else will take the step it's like a domino a domino effect yeah so hopefully uh, again you're helping other people um, a lot along the way so where can we find i'm going to post it in the uh show notes anyway but if you want to say where you can find it um and where people can find you if 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 you don't mind them finding you (laughs) to speak about different things um so I, i didn't know what to call it really so i called it um therapy for the therapist um, I had to use the number four because <laughs> therapy for the therapist was taken. I don't like that. I find it quite tacky, but it was the best thing I could do. Um, it makes it catchier, I guess. Um, I chose that title because I've always been interested in creative writing and I find that therapeutic, like poetry and things like that and short stories. So for me to have the opportunity to write and for there to be no sort of like academic reason for writing, I'm used to writing assignments and reports at work and stuff like that. So for me to write, I guess I see it as an extension of my work, but it's also leisure. I'm choosing to write. So I try to write creatively. So it's my therapy, really. And I am a therapist, an occupational therapist. So, yeah, I came up with that title. So it's on um, it's on WordPress. I decided not to pay for a fancy site. But um, I'm on Twitter as um, R Barrett, B-A-R-R-E-T-T-O-T. Um, and then there's a link to my blog on there. Fantastic. So if anyone wants to read it, that would be great. I try, <laughs> to, um, I try to post about once a week, um, depending on how busy I am. Yeah. Or depending nice. if I've got, sometimes I have an idea and then I just write notes and then I don't know where to go with it so i'll come back to it so i've got a few drafts on the go but sometimes i'll have a conversation with someone and think you know what actually that needs to that's important to talk about mm-hmm. and do you um i don't I, was, I wasn't sure there was a particular one on there was that written by someone else uh, do you have a uh, guest no you, no they're, they're all written a, by me they're all, they're all yeah. written by you okay because i wasn't yeah. i wasn't sure what, what that what that one was um particularly but all right cool what i'll do then i'll um, i'll definitely put the details up in um in the show notes uh, uh and then yeah so people can come and you know check out the uh the blog please please go ahead go ahead and read it because i i found it really um you know I, now do you say that you've you, you've got a, a passion for creative writing it, it, it does come come across because it, it's written yeah. so well um but yeah so just have a read of it i think it's a fantastic read and it, it really really shows your your thoughts and your feelings and you know it gives a, a background to what you've been through as well so thank you very very much for coming on the podcast today to share some of uh, something about yourself because i know it's not it's not easy um um to do that and i i, I definitely personally don't never want to just <laughs> expose people because that's not fair either so um i'm so glad that you you can trust me and trust other other people that are going to be listening with with your experiences as well so thank you very much thank you well yeah it's it sits with my philosophy that it should be normal and it shouldn't be a taboo it shouldn't be something to be ashamed of so yeah thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about it Thank you so much again, Richard, for taking the time out to come and speak to me about some of your personal and also professional experiences. I really do appreciate it. I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation too. And if you did, please remember to leave a review and also rate the show on Apple Podcasts and also send me any feedback via the social media platforms. Until next time, stay safe.